Paramedic 61, District 6. Stage 1 shooting. Skimmer Wayne near Lakeland, Charles. 478 Tango. 378 Tango, 1654. District 37 around. District 87 around. Thank you for joining us on Inside EMS. Now the always entertaining Chris Ceballero and the Ted Nugent of EMS, Kelly Grayson. Well, here we go, ladies and gentlemen. It's time for our live edition of Inside EMS. I'm your host, Chris Ceballero, and Merry Christmas. Happy Holidays to everybody. And, uh, you know, today's the day. We're flying without a net. We're bringing you a live show, and we're really excited about it. And, uh, you know, we're going to give you a quality show because uh, it's all about the quality. We all know that. But uh, before we go any further, it's time to bring him in, the only guy that keeps Santa on the naughty list, Kelly Grayson. Kelly, how are you? I'm fine, Chris. You know, I, I thought it was all about that base, about that base, not about oh, quality. That's right. Well, that's good, man. Uh, let's go ahead and bust in the song now for everybody. So, uh, you have a let's good Christmas. How was that for you? Uh, I I got a few lumps of told in my stocking, but I, I got a few nice presents. I'm sitting here ensconced in my velour beanbag chair in my underwear, eating Cheetos, beer in hand, ready to rock. And you know, I could picture that. We should probably get a picture of that and put that on the website so everybody can see it. But uh, you know, Christmas was good over here too. Now, I got to ask you the question because uh, I know you gave me a hard time about it. Did you get the dog a present? Um, Nancy got the dog a present. She bought the dog a bone. I, I didn't do it. But then again, that's that's par for the course for me for Christmas gifts. My significant other usually buys all the gifts, and I uh, I find out what they are when the recipient opens it. I see. So it's just one of those things. I see. So, you know, Kelly, let's go ahead and just run down for everybody that's listening. You know, we got a few callers that have already called in, and I know there are yeah. folks out there that are listening for the show. And just to kind of give you a little breakdown, we're going to go for about 90 minutes today, and we kind of have uh, the show broken out into different segments like we always do. You know, on the show, we kind of do the in the news, and we do the you know, uh, um, clinical issue, and then we do the uh, guest segment. Well, we're kind of going to change that a little bit. We're going to count down the top five stories. We've got a couple guests that are going to be in there. Probably mm-hmm. about the 20-minute range, we're going to bring you guys in and start asking your questions or answering your questions. And uh, with that, we're just going to kind of go and see how things flow. And uh, flying without a net, we'll see how it works out at the end. Yeah, and that that brings us to our, our number five EMS news story of the year, uh, the case of uh, Texas paramedic Marlise Munoz, um, who was uh, brain dead uh, and on life support and removed from life support. Uh, in uh, this happened in Fort Worth. Uh, apparently, she had a uh, she had a uh, this was back in January 27th, and um, Marlise was on uh, life support against her wishes and her family's wishes. Um, and it took a court order to get the hospital to remove life support because she was bearing a 23-week-old fetus, uh, and they were keeping her on life support for the sake of the fetus. And you know, this this case brings to brings to mind that you know the it's echoes of Terry Schiavo uh, and the whole right to life and, and right to death, uh, right to self-determination argument that we that we uh, debate continuously. Um, and uh, in this case, uh, the court sided with uh, the family and and the patient, and and let her let her die uh, according to her wishes. You know, this was one of those cases, Kelly, that really kind of hit home for me. Uh, when I worked at MedStar, Marlise was one of our paramedics. Uh, oh wow! Awesome paramedic. She always had 
she always had a, a, a smile on her face. She was motivated. She was one of my FTOs for the longest time. And when I heard about this story, it, it kind of gives you a, a double take to say, you know, is this really happening? Especially to happening to somebody, you know, who's such a big hearted person and knowing what uh, she was like uh, as an individual, it really kind of broke your heart to say that uh, now this this person, you know, now Marlise has to lay there and you yeah. know her family wishes to, you know, to kind of let her go. And uh, there are other people outside of the, you know, the hospital, outside the family world who are trying to make decisions for the, you know, for the family. And, and that's really just wrong. You know, one of the things that I think is important, we talked about the lady in Oregon who uh, yeah. moved to Oregon specifically because it's one of those states that give you the opportunity to be given medication by your physician if you're terminal and you want to take your own life. I mean, that's, mm -hmm. I mean, that's the way it should be. And now we've got all these people who are saying it's wrong, and I don't even know how we go about changing it, but we've got to think about something to say, you know, because if I'm going out, I want to go out how I want. Exactly. I think, you know, my, my, uh, my um, sensibilities as a libertarian uh, and and my my ethics as a Christian are somewhat at, at odds uh, on this issue, um, but I, I do believe that um, uh, I do believe that the uh, uh, the rights of of an unborn fetus shouldn't trump uh, the rights of of the mother in this regard, and I, and I certainly don't believe that anyone outside of that family has any business making those decisions. Um, that may be at odds with the teachings of my church. I, I don't know. I really don't care. Uh, that's, uh, everyone should have the right to self-determination. And, and for those people who would say that the, the fetus has rights as well, well, no, the fetus isn't born yet. And, and while, while your, your personal beliefs may hold it, that, that, uh, you know, uh, the fetus has rights. Uh, they don't come at the expense of another person's rights. Um, that's the the whole libertarian mindset of of individual rights and personal rights. Is your right to swing your fist ends at my nose. Um, you can do whatever you want as long as it doesn't infringe on the the free will of another person. Um, but here, and 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 this case demonstrates that perfectly. Uh, she didn't want to be on life support. You know, one of the things that I want to touch on here is the hospital is the one who put the quash on, you know, uh, taking her off life support. And they think that, you know, if we do this, we're going to be liable, um, you know, to the state or liable to the, you know, whoever it is, the, you know, the certifying body. And the judge had to come in and say, you know what, you're misrepresenting the law. You're misapplying the law here. Mm -hmm. You know, Kelly, I want to ask you, have we gotten to a point that we're so worried about HIPAA and so worried about all this, you know, litigious society that we're that we're not using our common sense to do what's right and uh, let people go when they need to go. Oh, oh, exactly. You know, and this isn't you know this isn't the only issue where where hospitals take this uh, this sort of uh, approach and, and this viewpoint, and they're a very risk averse viewpoint. They're they're worried about getting sued for this or that or the other. You know, I've long said that that uh, personal injury lawyers have a couple of untapped market niches that they could they could exploit. And one of those is wrongful spinal mobilization, and the other one is wrongful resuscitation. Um, I, I can't I can't count the number of DNRs I have signed 
legitimate DNRs that I have seen invalidated in hospitals right. because one family member said, please do something for mama. You've got you've got six calm, competent family members who, who knew what their, their loved one wanted uh, and one hysterical one who, who raises the fuss. And, and so they, they try to resuscitate someone against their express wishes. Uh, and, and the rationale, and it's always been a faulty one in my mind, and I think the, the courts – uh, the courts uh, would uh, would probably back them up if they honored the DNR. Uh, their rationale has always been, well, a dead person can't sue you, but a live, angry family member will. Um, right. Yeah, that may be true, but, but that still doesn't trump your <clears throat> ethical duty to follow a patient's expressed wishes. Uh, and if a person has a signed DNR, you should honor it. Um, not not because, because it's the right thing to do and it's the legally correct thing to do. Um, you, know, you have a job as as a uh, an advocate for that person when they can't express those wishes that they they did it beforehand. Uh, that's your job now to to right. to carry out those wishes. And I think that one of the things we eventually have to talk about is the difference between uh, working a DNR and giving basic life support because I think there's a big misconception in EMS. But as we start to transition, that's our number five uh, top story of the year. Let's go ahead and bring Dan Limmer in here. Dan is going to be one of our uh, guests today, and Dan's a friend of the show. And I got to tell you, uh, you know, one of the things that I did for Christmas this year for the folks at uh, Christian Hospital EMS is I bought them all Dan's apps, and he put oh, a nice yeah. little bundle together for them. And I got to tell you, these guys are just raving about it. They're using the EKG recognition, and I'm gonna have to give them a test, Dan. Uh, so I think you did a good thing for our folks, and uh, thanks for joining us on Inside EMS. Well, thank you uh, for for doing that. It's a great uh, gift education, and I'm uh, thrilled to be here. Oh yeah, uh, and I just I'm I'm a I'm a Dan Limmer fanboy. Uh, You know, not only is he a a renowned EMS educator and a heck of a textbook author, but he's a great cook, a fantastic dancer, and his hair smells terrific. Sounds like you have a bit of a man crush right there. That's a man crush right there. Well, it, it so, was the slow dancing. You you have to smell their hair. So um. oh, very nice. I'm glad I don't have any hair. <laughs> Let's go ahead and get you in here. Someone has a little bit more interesting things to talk about. But uh, so first off, your holidays they went okay. Everything was was great. Uh, you know, very good. It's great to see it through a child. You know, with uh, with little Margot, and we had a great time. And I hope it was the same for you guys. It was it was really yeah, awesome. Kelly had great. to work. So he was uh, he was kind of stuck there. He did get his dog a present though, so that was really awesome. But let me ask well, you this: and, and seeing my daughter open presents was great too. So yeah, there's nothing like it when them kids are opening presents. Um, oh, yeah. But let me ask you this, Dan: since we have you here, and, and uh, before we go along, I'll, I'll let Kelly get the next question. Is you know you're one of the experts when it comes to education. I mean, you, you, your name's on the textbooks, you're you're a great speaker, you know, the apps are a great thing, and if folks haven't uh, had the opportunity to uh, check them out, they really should. Well, let's think about this education now in the future, and maybe you can give us just a little bit of taste of your thoughts of where education, EMS education, is going to be coming in the uh, years to come. Almost like we <clears throat> we talked at, uh, at EMS World when you hosted the, uh, the session there. I think that... Um, I think that probably the most important thing that EMS needs to do, and I think we're moving towards, uh, is reality. 
you know, I could have I could have talked about you know flipped classrooms and lots of the educational things, but I think what we really need to do is to is to get as much reality based as we can. I think simulation is moving in. I think that's mm-hmm. really good. I think that there are some uh, some computer things that will that will drive us there. But really, when you look at what we've done, you know, people taking the registry first time about seventy percent. You get up to about ninety percent with two or three attempts. I mean, so we're not doing poorly as far as that goes. I really think that that the future of 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 what we need to do has to be reality based. We have we have nineteen year old kids assessing other nineteen year old kids pretending to be eighty one year old women, and we wonder why they don't know what a sick person looks like. So I think that you know, <laughs> yeah. kind of the end of the year kind of thing we're doing here is. Boy, I think a little reality into what we do um, is probably would be a really great shot in the arm. You know, Dan, that was, um, I think it's hard for, for a number of educators, uh, or at least the, the the ones who've been doing it a while, to, to kind of change horses and, and go from that old paradigm of, of classroom didactic format and, and a practical skills lab to to more simulation-based and uh, and you know, reality-based and, and internet-based education and, and and streaming multimedia and all the, the wonderful resources that are out there for us now. Um, what aside from your apps, obviously, which are which are stellar, what what resources would you point people to to uh, you know for simulations and and, uh, and you know kind of um, uh, give do some crowdsourcing for us, man. Where where can you point educators to to uh, to get that sort of uh, that that sort of content? Well, I've got to say, I really think that starting with low tech versions, um, we we don't use resources we have. That mm-hmm. I've brought my kids into EMT classes. That people bring their kids and grandkids into EMS classes. Mm-hmm. Bring their grandparents in. I took my entire EMT class to an assisted living facility just to do history and, and physical exams on patients who love to have the attention. You know, I think we oh, yeah. have a lot of high-tech options and things that are, you know, that are out there. But I think sometimes we miss really low-tech opportunities to give our students things. I think largely, as, as Kelly said, because we're locked into the old ways we do things. We have the belief that I have 140 hours for my EMT class. And for some reason, we think that lecture is the most important part of that. Mm-hmm. And if I say, "Well, I'm going to take four hours. I'm going to, you know, bring in, you know, have the senior citizen center, you know, send a bus over with five people to talk with my class, or you know, go to the daycare and take vitals," that that for some reason that's less valuable than lecture, you know. So I think Kelly's correct in that there's an attitude that we feel we have to be up there talking when it's probably one of the least effective things. So that being said, I would say that. You know, the low-tech things that we can arrange relatively easy within our community um, cost essentially nothing, have relatively low risk. Obviously, we don't want to have kids or, or geriatric patients, you know, fall. Or, I mean, you know, we have to obviously be careful with like we would do in any class. And then I think as we, as we go on that, you know, we're getting more and more into, into simulation. And I think that mm-hmm. you can have simulation companies will come into your class and do a demo. You know, we have Life mm-hmm. Flight of Maine up here that has a traveling motorhome with a sim mannequin in it, and they will put on a show for you. You know, I think that looking out for the resources you have from your flight services and from your, you know, other things around to bring those in, uh, and still in doing this, we haven't we haven't spent a lot. You know, I still think we're kind of lacking a little bit of of computer simulation stuff. We have mm-hmm. some basic stuff out there. We have quizzes. We have things. 
Um, but I certainly would like to see more really good online simulation uh, programs out there, and I, I sadly can't put my finger in any of those, and I'll apologize for if, I've, if I've slighted anyone, um, but I, they're very expensive to create, and yeah. I think publishers are starting to get around to this, uh, and I would really would like to see, see more of that. Well, maybe uh, maybe that's something you could work on next, Dan. But let me ask you this, because you, you mentioned it a couple times, and I want to dive into it a little bit deeper. You talked about more reality-based simulation, and you know you talked about the you know the RV with the Sim Man in it. When you talk about more of a reality-based, give us a definition of that, because it would seem like that's the same old thing, just on wheels, or uh, you know we're just kind of uh, recycling the same thing. Well, I think that that you can you know you can go out and buy um and i i you know i don't want to just say sim man that's like saying you know uh you know tissue is kleenex right there's a, there obviously there are a lot of providers out there of, of mannequins but you can get a simulation mannequin out there and you can use it like a big gold hunk of plastic rescue randy you know so mm-hmm. having a simulation mannequin doesn't mean you're doing simulations i think the difference being and you can even do this with, with programmed live patients is I think what this gives you the ability to do is run a call from start to finish, getting real visual clues, really putting yourself in the situation of the person making the decisions and seeing the reward or the consequence of your actions. Mm-hmm. I think those are the parts of simulation that differ from lab. Now, notice I said you could do that with a program patient. You know, we go in and we go through, okay, assess this and that, what do you find? And half the time they're talking to the lab station person and not the patient. You know, and you're not basically seeing it and making the decisions. You're going through rote skills. A lot of it comes down to the, the determination and the persistence of the educator to force students in to do these situations. You know, when they're patients, it depends on their acting, and a, you know, a person in class yeah. doesn't, you know, look sick. But with a, I think what simulation can do is create an atmosphere, especially when you have a well-done simulation that can actually yeah. give you cause and effect. And I, I think that's really the strength of, of what it is because you're in the seat, you're making the decisions and going through it. That doesn't always need the $100,000 mannequin, but I think when they're used properly, I think simulation um, has benefits. Yeah. You know, I um, one strategy I, I don't think we employ properly is, is clinical time. You know, particularly in EMT-level courses, um, you know, the the – traditional paradigm is we think of clinicals as the capstone to the course. You learn all your psychomotor skills, you learn all your cognitive information, then you go out and do X number of shifts, and that's it. Um, If we approach these with a little more structure um, and and gave them homework to do from the patients they learn, uh, the patients they contact, you know, uh, I I think uh, that could be a much better learning experience than just droning on and on about it in a classroom. You know, Dan, you mentioned bringing your students to an assisted living facility. Uh, you know, I, I had an EMT class once where I was having difficulty getting uh, ER time scheduled for my EMTs. So I scheduled them uh, two eight-hour shifts in a nursing home. Uh, and, man, one thing they learned was is, is how hard it is to to be a nursing home nurse. Uh, and, and they got, you know, 40-something patient contacts at uh, each shift of people with, you know, elderly people with chronic, uh, multiple chronic health issues. And I think if you, you know, if you turn them loose with some structure, say, okay, what are you, you know, go through these patients' charts, what are the 10 most common, uh, you know, disease 
diagnoses these people have, you know, the, and, and or the ten most common medications they take, so on and so forth. Uh, I think you can get a lot more bang for your buck out of out of clinics for that. Yeah, one of the sad ironies in, in doing this is that the people that of your class that are really smart and you know they're going to get it anyways, they're the ones that dig in and talk to the patients and do things. The yeah. ones that really need it have their back to the wall the whole thing and have to be pushed even to do a very minor thing. You know, clinicals and, and ride times can certainly be a, a crapshoot, and I think you're 100% right in figuring out ways to put structure in there uh, to actually make yeah. it a learning experience rather than checking off hours or skills. You know? Yeah. Awesome. Hey, Dan, for the folks that are out there as we get ready to uh, say goodbye and wish you a happy new year, if folks want to learn a little bit more about your apps, uh, Limmer Creative, how do they get in touch with you and how do they, uh, you know, get their hands on those apps? Well, the easiest way is uh, LimmerCreative.com, L-I-M-M-E-R Creative.com. You go right there and contact us, see all the products. It's a nice new site this year. Stephanie's been uh, been been working very hard this year. We've had a really great year and had a uh, great response and some new products and stuff. So go right to the website, and you can uh, reach out to us, get right to the apps, uh, whatever you need from that. Awesome. Dan Limmer, I want to thank you for joining us. You have a great new year, and come back and chat with us soon. All you have to do is ask, uh, both of you guys, Chris and Kelly. I, you think you're great in what you do. And, Kelly, you be careful out there on some of those uh, some of those uh, websites and Facebook groups. I hear that they're uh, giving you a little trouble these days. <laughs> yeah, 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 they are. Um, uh, started, a, started an inadvertent war, um, but uh, uh, tempest in a teacup. Yeah, we'll do what you want. I got to tell you, if you ever wanted to come back and, and do something, I'm going to take your time up here. Is you know the that social media concept and the anonymity it gives, and the and the way people uh, communicate in that would be a really interesting uh, topic. And I, and I see that Kelly, I've known you for a long time, and and your character and and your and your true intent in doing this, and how dis uh, how disjointed things get. Um, I, I certainly wish you the the best in that. It might be a great topic for the future. Yeah, we'll have to it's jump. the boon and the bane of of uh, information. You know, it's it, it's a double edged sword for sure. Well, awesome, Dan. Thanks for coming, and uh, we'll chat with you real soon. Have a great new year. Thank you. Same to you both. I really appreciate being on. All righty. Well, let's go ahead and move to our our top uh, four, and we're going to talk about the fourth and the third news story. So, Kelly, what's number four? Number four is the uh, is the the current state of Medicare fraud in EMS. You know, I, I um, uh, long time ago I, I was told by my employer that uh, that Medicare spends about eighty percent of its fraud uh, investigation budget uh, investigating EMS services um, because aside from from durable medical equipment, that's some of the biggest uh, uh, perpetrators of, of fraud uh, to Medicare. And um, there was a, uh, a story from April uh, that said $5 billion Medicare bill for ambulance services points to fraud. Officials say it explains why a newly released report shows Medicaid paid more uh, to ambulance companies than cancer doctors or orthopedic surgeons. Um, <laughs> uh, patients smoke cigarettes. Uh, the story starts off with, uh, with a, a, a thing from Bloomberg News. The patient smokes cigarettes in the passenger seat of the ambulance every week chatting with the drivers while taxpayers flip the $1,000 bill to drive him four blocks for his dialysis treatment. Oh, that's, you know, that's a, anyone who has uh, 
practiced EMS in, in the Dallas, uh, Fort Worth area or in the Golden Triangle in Houston knows about the, uh, the uh, ubiquitous Medicare fraud outfits out there that, that make their living defrauding uh, the taxpayers for bogus dialysis runs and, and bogus uh, uh, psych transfers and rehab uh, transfers. This is this is uh, endemic in EMS and, and right. Medicare is starting to crack down and, and and put some of these some of these bad actors in jail. Uh, and in addition to, uh, to levying millions of dollars of fines, uh, it's pretty uh, pretty uh, uh, significant problem in EMS. I don't know how how bad is it where you are, Chris. You know, I think it's bad everywhere, and I think that if there's going to be folks that are going to abuse the system, uh, they're going to abuse the system. But I, but I want to make this point here, because you and I have talked about community paramedicine and, you know, mm-hmm. the future of EMS and where is it going. Here is a great reason as to why we have to worry about our future funding model uh, and how we're going to get the money to, to pay the bills and keep the lights on. Because what you see here is Medicare is saying that they're paying $5 billion a year and a lot of it is fraud. So as they now mm-hmm. start to think about this funding model of the future, do you really think they're going to give us you know, $500 per trip for taking somebody from point A to point B? It's really going to come down to the fact, Kelly, that if we don't show that we gave somebody a good patient outcome, we're not going to get paid for that. And if we're not going to get paid for that, where does that money come from? So this is why changing the paradigm of emergency mm-hmm. medical service to mobile health care is going to make a difference, and it's smack dab right in the top five stories uh, in 2014. Oh, yeah. You know, and, and this is this is only going to get worse as far as uh, not so much the fraud, but the uh, but uh, Medicare turning a, a critical eye toward reimbursement uh, as demand increases, and it's only going to increase with the uh, with uh, the full implementation of the Affordable Care Act, we're going to have more people relying on the federal government for for uh, healthcare finance, um, either by uh, you know the the insurance exchanges uh, or or by the addition to the Medicaid, uh, the 30 million people they wanted to add to the Medicaid rolls. Um, you know there was an excellent uh, excellent uh, uh, fable or a parable uh, on on the way this, this sort of thing works in a blog called The Happy Hospitalist. It says, welcome to the Medicare tomato. And it, and it, uh, it compared uh, Medicare reimbursement to uh, the relationship between a grocer and his, and his uh, customers buying tomatoes, you know. And, and one day uh, the government declared everyone to, be, uh, to have a right to tomatoes and, and, how the, uh, and we were going to provide you with tomatoes and provide these tomatoes for you. And it showed the proliferation of, of you know, uh, uh, um, regulations and, and red tape and so on and so forth and, and the, uh, the increase in fraud and all that sort of thing. I think it's an excellent uh, parable for, for how Medicare works in, uh, in reimbursing health care. Um, it's, a, it's a problem. What, what, was, uh, what was interesting to me in reading this story is, is that in some parts of the country, there were, there were some related stories on it, in some parts of the country, apparently, dialysis trips and that sort of thing are not uh, 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 pre-approval is not required for Medicare, and and they were starting a pilot program in some of these uh, eastern seaboard states to uh, to start requiring uh, pre-approval for these things. Um, 
that was news to me. I thought that was that was nationwide because for as long as I've been in EMS, we had to have uh, we had to prove medical necessity before we could even think about getting reimbursed for those patients. Uh, but apparently, that's not the case in, in around the country, and, and uh, uh, a lot of a lot of shady outfits take advantage of that. You know, there were at last count there were there were uh, over 300 uh, ambulance services in Harris County, Texas. And most of them were – go ahead, what? I was going to say, which is crazy. Yeah, crazy. I'm not saying 300 ambulances. I'm saying 300 ambulance services, 300 different companies, probably about 250 of which solely exist to run Medicare, uh, run dialysis transports. And they're they're often owned by the same families um, who will open up a a shadow company – Built the the federal government for for up to two million. And once upon a time, the U.S. attorney wouldn't even wouldn't even pursue a case unless it was fraud of greater than two million dollars. So they built them for all they could, and then shut it down and open it up under under a, another name, uh, often with the same trucks with the new decals on the side. I guess that's a way to make a living. So uh, you know, really interesting. <laughs> yeah. Let's go ahead and get to our our third news story. But before we do that, for the folks that are listening. We're going to take your questions here in about uh, ten more minutes, uh, seven more minutes. So if you want to go ahead and call in, it's nine one seven eight eight nine eight zero one six, and uh, we like to get you in the queue and uh, talk to some of you guys that are out there. But let's go ahead and hit them with our third story of the year, third top story of the year. What do you got? Uh, this is this, this is uh, another file from the DC Fire and EMS files from uh, April of uh, this year. Uh, the DC Fire Lieutenant uh, Colleen Davis. Uh, who uh, refused to uh, help an elderly man who literally died across the street from the firehouse uh, and apparently ordered one of her subordinates not to uh, not to respond as well. Um, Cecil Mills uh, suffered a heart attack and died across the street from the firehouse, and the people in the firehouse knew about it uh, but would not go respond uh, without a 911 call. And uh, uh, Lieutenant Davis uh, faced... Nine charges. Um, she faced. Uh, I'm gonna say it's nine, but she faced multiple charges uh, and uh, retired before those charges could be levied. So she faced no uh, disciplinary action. And that's you know, <laughs> I hate to pick on the DC Fire EMS so constantly, but gosh, they're such a right target that it seems like they can't ever uh, uh, do it right. Um, and uh, this is just yet another one of those. Uh, one of those uh, sad cases that makes the news uh, and gives them yet another black eye. I think they're running out of places you can bruise. Uh, but uh, this is this is how it goes in our nation's capital, uh, home of the uh, second most dysfunctional organization uh, in the United States, Congress, D.C. Fire and EMS being the first. Yeah. You know, I think it's one of the things that it really goes to me, it goes to the, the nut of um, – what did we get into this business for? And mm-hmm. what has happened in our career that we've finally said we're not going to go help somebody? And are we yeah. really worried about the fallout? I didn't get a 911 call. I can't go across the street and help somebody. Are we really worried about the fallout of saving somebody's life and not following the rules? I got to tell you, man, that's one of the uh, the rules that I'm going to have to break. You know, in our chat room, somebody is saying we can say a major uh, this was major negligence, and I think that, that that's correct. Oh yeah. But Karen, I want to ask you, how does it work out 
that uh, we just stop caring and we're not doing what we got. You know, we're not stacking the dead presidents. We're not going to get rich from no. doing what we're doing. It. We're doing it because we thought we could make a difference and be the exactly. best part of somebody's worst day. How does that change? I, I I don't know how it changes, but I don't think you can lay the blame specifically at, at one uh, at one party. Um, I think it uh, DC Fire EMS's problems stem from a lack of leadership from the top down. But but the line troops and the and the union are are not uh, guilt free. Um, they're just as uh, you got to learn to work and play well with one another, and and eventually remember uh, all of them. That uh, the the very thing you just stated, you know, we're in this to help people, and we're not doing a, a good job of it. And take a long, hard look in the mirror and and decide whose fault it is. You know, I work for the one of those shameless capitalist money grubbing privates, and I don't need a nine one one call to dispatch me on a call. People come up and knock on the door of my station for the uh, on the rare moments when I'm here, or they'll come come up, pull up to the ambulance, or walk up to the ambulance. And all it takes is a 10-second transmission to my dispatcher to say, hey, put me on this call. We just had a walk-up. That's all it took. Uh, and, and I don't need that even to start rendering care. It's just to, to generate a, a ticket. Um, I, I really don't see uh, how people get to this state. Uh, I understand that when you when you work in an agency where, where the leadership is so poor that you felt like you feel like you're hanging out in the breeze uh, and you're unsupported and unappreciated like like probably many of the, the, the field crews at, at DC Fire EMS on those ambulances every day feel. Um, it's hard to, to, to keep that zeal for doing your job well. Um, and, and in that respect, I commiserate with them. But, but still, um, at some point you have to remember that, that the most important people in the equation are the people you take care of, take care of, uh, not the people you work for. Uh, I've been in that situation where you know, and I've always uh, in the, in those unsatisfying relationships and those unsatisfying jobs. I've always said, you know, uh, I like the people I work with. Uh, I like the people I work on. I just don't really care for the people I work for. Uh, and that's the way I kept going through it because those weren't the the people that mattered the most to me. It was the, the patients I was working, uh, patients I was caring for, and the guy sitting 18 inches away in the other seat of the ambulance. Um, I don't know if they lost sight of that uh, or if they just weren't attracting the right recruiting and training the right people in the first place. Uh, right. But it's something that needs to get, get fixed because, you know, you got an agency that should be the model EMS agency of our country. Instead, it's a national laughingstock. Uh, something has to turn that around, and, it, and you can't just blame it all on Kenneth Ellery. He's not even there yeah. anymore. You, you can't you can't blame the systemic problems, and there are systemic problems. You can't blame them on on fire department leadership or the lack thereof. And I think that one of the things that we have to think about is you you have to be solid in your leadership, and your mm-hmm. folks have to. Believe. I mean, let's look at just really quick before we get ready to transition and talk to the callers. Is let's think about you know, what's going on in New York City right now? And, and the cops are turning oh, yeah. their back on the mayor. And, you know, they during the funeral, they were outside and they turned their back on the mayor. And just recently at the police graduation, they booed and hissed and heckled the mayor. And, and it's really important that if we're going to, uh, you, you know, follow the leader, 
we really have to ensure that we can support that leader 100 percent. And you're right. I think it does come from the top down and there are systemic issues in any organization. But I think that one of the things that we've got to think about is we've got to think about how do we keep our leadership fresh? How do we keep our folks engaged and how do we make them part uh, of the system uh, so we can keep leading them in the future. But let's go ahead and transition. Uh, I'm really coming to a point now I think we're really excited for. And uh, one of the things that uh, we wanted to do was take some callers and, and kind of get your questions. And one of the callers, one of the, one of the questions that came in in the chat room, uh, we talked a little bit before about the Medicare fraud, and I think it was really interesting, and I don't know who, uh, who said it because I don't have their name. But uh, on the flip side, how much money is lost due to bad charting? You know, I think that's a really great question, and it's one of the things mm-hmm. that we kind of take umbrage to our charting sometimes. And I think that you and I and the folks that have been in this business that have had to go on the court, you know, they're really sitting there and they're saying, um, you know, they're saying, uh, I'm not going to go to court again. I need to do a better chart. But we constantly leave a lot of money on the table because we're not charting oh, the yeah. right way. Well, oh, yeah. And, and you know, the – so much of, of what we put in a report is, is superfluous anyway, and, and doesn't it doesn't communicate the the transition of care and the care you provided accurately, and and we do things like you know uh, chart that we you know transferred the patient to the hospital bed, rails raised, notified ED nurse, yada yada yada, and and, and this sort of thing. Yet we don't document medical necessity. We don't do simple things like get the patient's insurance information. I can speak for my employer and that, you know, in a memo just last week, uh, they said we spend, um, we spend probably 10 to 15% uh, of, of our reimbursement on just gathering insurance information that could have been gathered, uh, that could have been gathered by the medic. We, we hire an outside company to investigate these things when, when the medic puts no insurance, uh, uh, or puts a wrong insurance number or, or erroneous information or just leaves those fields blank, uh, it costs them money. Um, and, and, and that money could go toward equipment. It could go, go toward a, an operating fund for those lean times. It could go toward pay raises. Uh, that would be a really nice thing, but we, we don't pay enough attention to it. And, uh, you know, some of the we, – we, as, a, as a general rule, we, we document very poorly. Um, and uh, – EMRs are, are certainly a help toward that uh, with these uh, electronic medical records. Uh, uh, the sad thing is that most of the uh, current electronic medical records are geared toward just that, reimbursement, and not necessarily full documentation. Uh, they, they excel at filling in the blanks to get you paid, uh, but they don't do a real good job of allowing you to paint a, an accurate picture of the patient, the care you provided, and how they responded to it. Um, but we, we drop a lot of money. Uh, for for no particular reason, and um, that's uh, that's something that should be addressed in, in initial training and continuing it throughout the uh, throughout your career. Yeah, I have to agree with you 100%. Let's go ahead and move to the uh, lines, and we're going to go ahead and chat with Melissa, and uh, we'll get her on. She's got a great question for us. Where did she go? Here she is, Melissa. Well, you there? I'm here. How are you? Hi, Kristen Kelly. I'm good. How are you? We are awesome. I'm great. All right. Well, where are you uh, from, Melissa? I appreciate where am I from? I'm from Indianapolis. Okay. Mm-hmm. And uh, what? Yeah. What's your position? What? Where do you work? Uh, I work at um, Indiana University School of Medicine. So cool. um, I'm yeah. So, so 
uh, my question about, um, you know, you're kind of talking about the money potentially lost on poor documentation, and, and I think there are a lot of things that, that go into that. But one of the things that is really hard and has been hard for me to get across is uh, the need to, to I guess, create realistic expectations um, in the EMS classroom about what the job of most EMTs graduating um, is going to be, and a lot of that will be non-emergent trans, uh, transport. And that's never really focused mm-hmm. on, and, and the documentation for it even, even less so. And so I'm, I'm kind of curious on what you think is the resistance to something that seems so obvious to include in the curriculum. I, I'll, I'll field that one. Uh, I think that, uh, by and large, we, we recruit the wrong people in EMS for the wrong reasons and train them the wrong way. Um, uh, do, you pointed out that we, we foster a lot of unrealistic expectations because we, we recruit people to be lifesavers and, and we're going to be racing the reaper and snatching people from the jaws of death two or three times a shift. And the reality is, is, is stub toes and diarrhea and, and the occasional chest pain and, and a whole lot of nausea, vomiting, and diarrhea and, and, uh, and the occasional interfacility transport. Um, and, and we lose sight of the fact you, you're, you're recruiting action-oriented people who want to go out there and, and do what they were told that they'd be doing when they, when they signed up for the job. Uh, and then you put them in this job where they're not lifesavers. They're primarily caregivers. Uh, right. And and there's some there's some disillusionment and and resentment uh, there and and I don't think it's I don't think it's a big stretch to 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 uh, say that uh, a lot of those people who are in that position get to the get to the state where they say what's the point you know document document this isn't really worth my time this isn't this isn't what I signed up for I think we go a long way toward uh, addressing that in the curriculum. Um, and and de-emphasizing the whole adrenaline junkie life-saving aspect of EMS, and and tailor it to or and make the point that is it's not life-saving, it's out of hospital healthcare. Yeah, and I think that's an important thing, Kelly, that you bring up. And Melissa, one of the things that you know I think that the community paramedicine piece is going to do is it's going to give us a different focus on not only, uh, you know, the emergency aspects of what we're doing, but but more the primary care things. You know, they're saying by the year 2025, they're going to be short 274,000 primary care physicians. Well, when you talk about Mm -hmm. 10,000 people retiring a day, who's going to take care of these people? Who's the one who's going to, you know, take care of all these folks when you have 275,000 primary care physicians short? I know the answer to that, and it's going to be our community paramedics. But I think that, mm-hmm. you know, Kelly, you're absolutely right when you said that we, the, the way that we recruit in EMS, we recruit with the adrenaline junkie and the traumas and the cars that come off the highways and, you know, driving down the street with lights and sirens on and, you know, but that's not the reality. And the reality is, is, is you know, we ask the question a lot, a lot, is EMS a career field or is EMS a stepping stone? I think we're making it a stepping stone only because it's not what people think once they get in it. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, you, you you know what is uh, the old uh, uh, National Registry survey said the uh, the uh, career expectancy of the average EMT is five years, uh, and they either burn out or they move on to a better paying uh, profession or, or profession with better benefits and hours. Um, but a lot of that is disillusionment. You know, they they just 
EMS was not what they uh, hoped it would be, and they moved on to something else. Um, I think if we fostered better, uh, more realistic expectations and increased our educational requirements, uh, everything else would, would kind of follow from that. We'll, we'll eventually get better reimbursement and better pay uh, because we demonstrate better value for the buck. I have to agree. How, how'd that help, Melissa? Was that any good? Uh, thank you for your thoughts on that. Hopefully, um, as a lot of programs move toward community paramedicine, some of that will trickle down into the initial training and kind of change the culture on that. Um, thanks for your thoughts. Awesome. You know, well, thanks for I'll being add here. one thing. I'll add one thing to that, uh, Chris, and, and this is something that Nancy and I were discussing the other night. You know, we 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 point toward. Uh, we, we aim our, our uh, recruiting efforts toward the young guys and, and uh, the, the young adrenaline junkie, 20 to 25 years old, or, and we're even creeping into the high schools now. Um, and, and Nancy's take on it is, is we're recruiting the entire entirely the wrong demographic. We need to be looking for people who are older, who have a little more life experience, um, who, who want to switch careers. Uh, and, and get some people in the, in the 30 year old age bracket who, who have had, uh, you know, kind of a broader perspective on life, uh, not just on healthcare. Um, and I think we probably would get more caregivers that way rather than adrenaline junkies. You know, and I think that one of the things that you have to think about, though, is is how are you going to pay these people? Because now you're talking about yeah. 30 years old. You know, they've got house payments. They've got two or three kids at this point, and uh, mm-hmm. they can't live eight dollars and fifty cents an hour. And uh, you know, I this think that that's where you may not be able to get it. You may not be able to get that salary in your current uh, at your current place. But there are good paying EMS jobs out there. Uh, you know, uh, you may not be able to find them in your area, but they do exist. Right. But I think that that's one of the things that we have to think about. And you know, now again, not to beat a dead horse, but we're getting ready to hire um, full, three full time uh, advanced practice paramedics. We call them here, or community paramedics. And we have to change their pay structure because I'm not going to pay them like a, a, a you know a regular um, a paramedic. And I think that's one of the things that we have to uh, look for. But let's go ahead and uh, take our next caller, Kelly. Uh, we're going to go to Mark, and he's got a question about science-based EMS. Mark, how you doing? You there? How you doing? I am awesome. Where are you from, sir? I'm from Swansea, Massachusetts. Awesome, man, Massachusetts. And what about uh, where do you work? I work for uh, Swansea EMS. Oh, that's great. So, what's your well, question? There's uh, Kelly has been a, a huge advocate of um, hey, it doesn't make sense to strap a 90-year-old lady who slipped and fell and doesn't have any complaints to the longboard. Um, and within my service, at least last year, the, the the thing that really resonated with me was our medical director standing up and saying. Don't put O2 on everyone. If their SATs are good, if their SATs are above 95%, don't just automatically slap oxygen on them unless these other criteria. And if anyone has a problem with that, you have them call me and I'll explain why you want to have free radicals floating down, causing mm-hmm. um, the issues. So I mean, there's science for things like not striking people, everyone down to the longboard, and there's science for not giving oxygen to everybody. And there's, there's other therapies that make sense, and yet there's a huge backlash against maybe you shouldn't put this particular person on a longboard because, you know, you were taught this 15, 20 years ago. How do we deal with that? How do we actually move, like, you're never going to necessarily get 100% buy-in people who say, 
all right, I stopped and thought about it, and I've read the article that makes sense, and you're correct. But how do we how do we approach that within the system, particularly of people who are very resistant to that? How do we how do we teach the old dogs new tricks effectively? Possibly, yeah. But some yeah. are dogs that are still true. Well, you know, I think part of that is uh, uh, um, one of the things that's going to help is is attrition. You know, I mentioned it earlier. The, average, the career expectancy of the average EMT is five years. Um, it, it may take time to change, but but the truly intransigent people who don't want to learn uh, new ways of practice and, and and don't believe in the science and they reject any evidence, um, uh, they're gonna they're gonna weed themselves out eventually. Uh, you know, it may not be as fast as we want it to, uh, but you know, very few people spend an entire career. 20 years in EMS. Most of them leave fairly quickly. Um, and and one thing that I've noticed over, over the last 10 years in interacting with people in social media is um, I'm not the lone voice in the wilderness anymore. You know, I was I was an EMT with, with two or three others or a paramedic with two or three other colleagues who were who were trumping, you know, evidence-based medicine and, and, and they, this, you know, trying to dispel as much dog as, as much dogma as we could. And there were plenty of physicians doing it, but now there's a whole lot more paramedics who are who are uh, who are believers in evidence-based medicine and and look at what we do with a critical eye as to whether it actually works and whether it's proven and, and evidence-based. So it is getting better. Um, uh, the only the only thing I would say is is, is just keep plugging at it. Eventually, we will outlast them if we can't train, change their minds. Yeah, I think it comes to the fact of, you know, what are we really doing and 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 uh is it for the, is it the best for the patient? You know, one of the things that it really falls in line with is do we have enough evidence that shows that what we do makes a difference? And and I think that, you know, Mark says it very eloquently when he says, you know, people are up in arms when we use this treatment, but but that's what we were taught to do. And yeah. we really need to get to a point where we're saying now, um, you know, how are we going to move our career field forward and, uh, you know, get the evidence that we need? I mean, when we talk about ACLS, Kelly, you and I have talked about ACLS forever. Um, mm-hmm. Where is the evidence that shows what we're doing even makes a difference? And, and I think that that's really, uh, um, uh, you know, kind of a hard thing to think about. Let's go ahead and we'll jump into our next question. Uh, we're going to go to, I don't know who whose name it is, but we're going to go to 309 area code. There's a question about the retiring combat medic coming into EMS. Who's on the line? Hey, Chris and Blogfather and audience. Oh, what's going on, John? How you doing? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. I figured I'd have to do something to get, you guys actually can afford a call screener? Come on. Yeah, now. we do. I mean, this is the MS1, man. We're, we're not playing. This is real. We're hot dollars. Oh, all seventy-five you guys, cents of you. Uh, I guess retiring uh, and combat medics that are coming back into EMS. And uh, I'm going to ask your question because this is something that I was really hot on. Yeah, uh, I'm. In fact, I'll ask both of you this: is that I am, you know, I am a retired combat medic, and mm-hmm. I'm telling you right now, I'm disillusioned by the medical calls. Because you got to figure, active side and reserve side, we don't get very many. I mean, we may get the 45-year-old collapsed on the PT track. Yeah. After running two miles. And, of course, this guy also, you know, 
eat 17 uh, Bubba Burgers a day, but and smokes a pack of two packs of Reds an hour. But other yeah. than that, we don't get the little old ladies fall down, little old lady, little old man that falls down and goes boom. And I, a lot of the, I'm sure there are a lot of medics that came out, you know, either got out or retired or whatever. They're sitting in the bus with you, and they're like, "Okay, this thing." What, what do we I do now? Doing. <laughs> yeah, bus old trauma junkies, you know it's because trauma is cut and paste, cut and dry. We all know what to do. Right. Yeah. Throw throw a tourniquet on. Keep their airway open. If your system allows it, throw a fourteen and run. But for the yeah. for the little you old know, lady, we, little old man, we're all yeah. <laughs> We had a, you know, that that's a, uh, a Chris, who was our guest that, that we had on for, uh, who was working on a, a uh, transition program for all former military medics or current military medics, yes. not just your Army 68 Whiskies who have, you know, National Registry EMT certification, but your your independent duty corpsmen and your Air Force uh, medical medical uh, guys. Uh, who, it was, that was Ben Chappick. He was He's a retired yeah. colonel from the United States Army, and he's really kind of made it his mission with NAEMT that there is something in place that when all these qualified medics are coming out of the, you know, the, the war and the service that they did overseas, how can we get them to work and how can we get them to work quickly? Uh-huh. Uh, I, I think that that's where that challenge is. But let's uh, go ahead. Go ahead. We'll go ahead and jump into our, our next call really quick uh, as we're coming up on our time. And it's our good friend, Ray Kemp. He's uh, on the line. What's up, Ray? Ray I'm here. Well, those of you who don't know Ray, Ray is the foremost uh, video producer in the EMS career field. And uh, recently in, in uh, Ferguson, Missouri, was taking some gunfire, had to hide under his truck. And I want to wish you a happy birthday, Ray. How you doing? Hey, I'm good. I'm good. I'm real good. How are you guys all doing? Thanks for the happy birthday too. I'm 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 great, man. I, I kind of call BS on the hiding under your truck, Ray. You you won't fit under a truck. Was it a jacked up rig or what? You're right. It wasn't behind. It was it was it wasn't under. We were behind. Okay. <laughs> you, were behind. <laughs> you caught me on that one. That, no, that was that one was of some pretty intense footage, man. It really was, man. Well, thank you. Yeah, it was uh, accidental, I think, to a point. We didn't realize we were uh, we, uh, just briefly, we just kind of swung behind the riot line when it was coming by us. And we just said, well, yeah. we'll just follow these guys. <laughs> Not realizing they were just getting us in closer and closer to where we probably shouldn't have been. But we got great yeah. news. And it was one of the things that uh, you you were right there in the middle of it, and I didn't I don't think you expected to be right there in the middle. But, you know, as soon as you turned around, I mean, you were – 25 feet away from the fires and and right in that um area where you were standing where you were filming um just right across the way they found something like 63 shell casings the next day i mean so you were really right in the middle of that war zone down there yeah yeah and again it was it was somewhat inadvertent we were at least that far up front and uh uh that's what caught us off guard, and, and you know, like you said, we were literally right there. I think we were the most forward, most camera crew that evening. I know uh, uh, Fox 
uh, affiliate was next to us for a little bit, but then they ended up running behind the buildings. But, yeah, you're right. Uh, uh, I understand there's 60-some shell casings. I know in one of the videos alone, we counted uh, 35 rounds of gunfire in less than a minute going off in one of the videos. That's the one where we scrambled and got back behind the Suburban. Yeah. We realized some yeah. of that gunfire was a little too close. So, yeah, it was it was accidental, I think, to a point. Like I said, I had no intentions of getting that close, but we kind of just, like I said, kind of swung in behind the riot line and just stayed with them, and they kept yeah. proceeding down the street closer to Canfield, and we just stayed right there with them. And you're right, we, we did get some incredible footage with the firefighters trying to trying their best to at least put the building out. They finally gave up and left. Uh, there was just way too much gunfire for them to stick around. Yeah. Well, Ray, I'm glad I'm glad you called in, man, because uh, I think one of the things you can you can add to the show is is uh, as a as an EMT and a professional videographer who you know does this sort of thing and, and films EMS scenes for a living. What kind of what what advice could you give to your average EMT, our listeners out there who who deal with videographers and the amateur photographers and, and what who are recording their actions on scene? How do you keep from stepping on your junk? Uh, on camera and having it wide up on YouTube. Yeah, the, the, the best advice I can give them, and, and, I, and I'm pretty uh, hardcore about this, is to not worry about what the bystanders are doing or what the yeah. media is filming or whatever. Stay focused on your patient care. That's number one. It's when you deviate from that and you start to entangle with the media or entangle with the public, you're almost guaranteed now something is going to show up on, on YouTube. It's that entanglement, yeah. uh, that confrontation that you're getting into. And uh, uh, for the most part, there's nothing illegal that they're doing by filming or yeah. photographing you. So this is something we need to accept. It's here. It's here to stay. Every cell phone's a camera and a video camera nowadays. So uh, 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 just stay focused on the patient care, and this this will go away very quickly and in and, and most cases won't even wind up anywhere but maybe on a on somebody's Facebook page here or there, and that's about it. Yeah, it's it's hard to stir up controversy over someone who's ignoring you and, and devoting all of his energy to patient care. Yeah, well, you're exactly right, and, and it's the ones that deviate from that that have become uh, uh, so visible in the last year. We yeah. had the incident that happened there in uh, Miami with the uh, helicopter issue and the captain from uh, uh, Dade, the Miami-Dade area, and then we had another one happen uh, I believe up around Wisconsin or Minnesota area, mm-hmm. I can't recall. And that one came out with a with a positive outcome for the uh, the guy who was arrested. So yeah, it's you, again just stay focused on the patient care. That's what you're there for. Don't worry about the filming. Don't worry about the media. Um, you know, for, I mean, mo- I'm, just about all the cases I've been on, quite frankly, too. Most of the time, they're they're pretty well out of the way. I, I mean, I yeah. hear these people; they seem to think that they're in the way. But when I look at it, they go, "No, they're really." They're really on the other side of the street, on the sidewalk over there. It's not like they're they're standing right behind you, and yeah. uh, with jabbing the lens down in between what you're doing and whatever. So, right. That's great. Ray, well, here, let me go ahead and ask you to stay around here because Kelly's going to go ahead and bring us the number two news story. And oh, yeah. uh, since you were a part of it, uh, maybe we can get your take on it. But Kelly, why don't you hit him with number two? Yeah, it's an excellent segue into our number two story, and these are those are the Ferguson riots in, in Ferguson, Missouri. Not, not just the uh, the riots that, that followed the grand jury decision not to indict uh, Daryl Wilson, um, but the the riots that erupted uh, right after uh, Michael Brown was was shot. Um, you know, and and 
the narrative, and I'll I'll even call out our our producers on it as well, because it, it's still you know the, the the commonly accepted narrative is is cop shoots unarmed black eighteen year old boy, um, and uh, I think that points uh, that that uh, paints a, a specific picture that may not necessarily be accurate. But God, it was it was such a um, you know it it spurred protests around the country, uh, not just in Ferguson. Uh, and it sparked a, a nationwide discussion on, on uh, how uh, the black community feels about uh, the, the people policing their communities and, and uh, you know, uh, hashtag activism, Black Lives Matter, and, and uh, also spurred uh, one nutcase to, uh, to shoot a couple of, ironically, uh, minority cops in New York City um, in retaliation. Um, it, it's it's done a lot to uh, drive a, a wedge between black and white in this community, and, and we forget that uh, you know cops are there to to protect and serve, uh, and certainly there are some bad ones out there. But by and large, the vast majority of police officers we encounter, whether be they black, white, uh, or any color in between, uh, are trying to do a good job in very difficult circumstances, and uh, we let them. Uh, what is effectively a, a fairly rare occurrence, um, uh, basically, you know, rip tear their, tear our uh, our country apart to some degree. Um, right. You know, Chris, you were right up in the middle of it uh, uh, every day with uh, with your command center. What uh, what's your reaction to to the Ferguson controversy? You know, I, think, I think that it was really interesting. But uh, you know, rather than give me my take, I, I, Ray was right there with us. Uh, from from the very beginning, and I think you know, from an EMS standpoint, um, you know, he had a great view of that uh, from the outside. Maybe I'll pitch that one to you, Ray, and kind of give your thoughts of uh, the Ferguson thing, and and from the standpoint of kind of being an insider outsider, right in the middle of all that. Wow! Yeah, it uh, uh, that first night of looting uh, that I was down there with you all was really uh, an eye-opener. I, I never expected to see anything like that at all ever in my life. And then to be right down in the midst of it was just astonishing. But then I think more importantly, what I was experiencing was the difficulty EMS was having in trying mm-hmm. to um, uh, coordinate with law enforcement, trying to integrate with law enforcement what's going on where and what have you. And, and I know those first few days, that was really non-existent. Uh, you guys, EMS, really struggled with that, trying to get up-to-date information. And uh, for a couple nights when I was riding there with with the supervisor uh, at uh, Christian Hospital, we were getting some of the best information that we needed right off of Twitter feeds. They were providing us what mm. the police were closing and what have you, and we, at the time, EMS wasn't getting that information directly from the police at all. So it, it was disturbing for me to see that there was a disconnect initially on this, this event. Uh, uh, but I don't think anybody expected this to ever happen like this. This caught everybody by surprise. And, you know, I, think uh, you, I think you brought up a good point, Ray, that, that I want to just touch on really quick, is that uh, social media became a really big part of the uh, incident in um, in Ferguson. I mean, we, were, we had the, the police lines were set up, and, uh, you know, everybody, they were out in full force, and they were talking to each other via Twitter to say, hey, the cops are at this end of the city. Let's go ahead and move up to the other side 
and uh, let's see, uh, you know, let's meet up there. And, and that's what they did. And now the cops are having to move the line, and they're trying now to get uh, to where the all the trouble was. So, you know, this was really a big story, and uh, uh, I don't see Ray anymore. I don't know if we've lost him or not. But, you know, Kelly, I think for the uh, sake of time, I mean, Ferguson was the, a big story. It was certainly one of the biggest things in my career that I had to yeah. – uh, uh, deal with and and teach and train, but it was a great educational opportunity, and I'm glad mm-hmm. that I had the opportunity to do it. I don't know that we're out of the woods yet, because you know we had that other shooting uh, in Berkeley, which is just around the corner, which is our coverage area, mm-hmm. and it seems that the rumor is uh, New Year's Eve uh, may be a uh, target, um, but uh, let's go ahead and uh, we'll transition now, and I, I think we'll move to our next guest, uh, and he's on the line, and, and it's always fun Bring him to talk with it's always fun to talk with our good friend, Dr. Peter Antevi. And for those of you who know, Peter is the uh, inventor of the Hantevi uh, system for uh, pediatric medication. And, you know, his kids are really apt at it. And also he's he's got that great uh, uh, box that helps us out with uh, giving pediatric med- medications. And, and, Doc, thanks for taking time out of your day and joining us. And uh, welcome to Inside EMS. Hey, Chris. Hey, Kelly. Thanks for having me back on the show. I love your guys' show, so uh, it's an honor to be here. Thank you. Great to have you, Pete. You're going to be a staple, man. We're just going to keep you and and Ray and and all those guys (laughs) coming back. So did you have a good Christmas, Pete? How was it? Yeah, we had a great time. We're actually up in uh, Santa Barbara right now. Uh, A good friend of mine just got married last night and uh, with his family up here until the second of the year. That's awesome. Let me go ahead and hit you with this, and then I'm sure Kelly's got a question for you. You know, you've really, and you and I have been, uh, you know, friends now, uh, probably going on our sixth year that we, uh, you know, started this, uh, you know, our our, uh, interactions together. And I specifically want to talk about pediatric education. It seems that um, one of the things that uh, you find is that there's always trepidation with the paramedic that has to deal with that pediatric arrest, and they're just not comfortable, um, how do we go about fixing that? How do we give a little bit more confidence to those people that are, are, are dealing with the death of those kids um, that they don't really seem to have? Well, it's, that's a great question, and I think that over the last couple of months, I've really been thinking real hard about that answer, uh, mainly because I'm the medical director for a large paramedic, uh, paramedic school in Broward County. And what I realized when I look at our curriculum is that ever since the beginning of schooling for these paramedic students, they get just a ton of adult education on, you know, asthma, cardiac arrest, uh, seizures, uh, and so forth, arrhythmias. And then we we kind of package pediatrics into a very small container, and we kind of throw it at maybe a few times during their 16-month educational uh, term there. Mm -hmm. And And then I said to myself, hey, wait a minute. Aren't all these kind of diagnoses... Uh, as far as treatment, assessment, and so forth, aren't they really pretty much the same as far as, you know, the pathophysiology? Yes, I know that people say that kids should not be treated like small adults, uh, but but quite honestly, I'm starting to uh, change my feeling about that, and I think that we should start educating them. When we talk about asthma in the adult, we should talk about asthma in pediatrics. Seizure in adult, seizure yeah. pediatric, cardiac, and so I think, I think, I think we have to start differently with how we're training our folks from the get-go. You know, that's, you know, that, that's great... something that. Go ahead, Kelly. I'll that's something you. that struck me. That's something that struck me in the last EMT class I taught under the the 
the current yeah, this is the first one I've taught under the the new uh, EMS education guidelines. Uh, in that, uh, in in much of the pathophysiology of, of those disease processes, uh, the textbook did delve into pediatrics uh, and special populations um, in each area. Um, so when we okay. talked about asthma, when we talked about heart disease, when we talked about cardiac arrest, resuscitation, those sorts of things, there was a, a pediatric component integrated into it. And we, you know, it still has the traditional pediatrics chapters and, and the anatomic and physiologic differences uh, uh, of children from adults. But um, it's already started to step that way. But, yeah, I think that's we, we should integrate it more into our, our initial education instead of, a, instead of as a, a, a capper you know, toward the end yeah. of the textbook. Oh, right. yeah, and, and this is how kids are different. Um, right. that, that never seems to be sufficient. Right. And then, and then, uh, then you know, as far as if you want to move it a step further, let's look at ACLS and PALS. And ACLS mm-hmm. and PALS are the same exact course, but we are, we are, we are kind of convincing the, uh, the providers out there, you know, even not only paramedics but nurses and doctors that, ACLS and PALS are two different things, but the algorithms are exactly the same. The only thing different are the medication dosages. And mm-hmm. I think we really have to start to, you know, explain to everyone that that this is just really one thing, and let's not make it two different things. Because, Chris, your initial question said it. There's, there's trepidation, there's fear, and that mm-hmm. fear and trepidation only comes from the person themselves. It has nothing to do with reality, if you will. Yeah, you know, what, what, yeah. Go ahead, Chris. I'm sorry. <laughs> one of the things that I think is challenging, though, is are we making – and you bring up that great point. And I, I kind of made that note, Doc, that, you know, when we teach adult asthma, we should teach PD asthma and so on and so forth. You know, and I think that one of the things – are we making it too hard for the providers to say that we can take care of this pediatric with confidence – uh, in the way that we're training them now, I mean, are we the catalyst for the trepidation because of the way we're teaching it? Yes, um, without a doubt. I think that um, if you go through school and and your instructor and your clinical instructors um, and the folks who you're you're doing your 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 field uh, clinicals with are telling you, oh, pediatrics is is a different animal. If you really believe that, um, and really, I, I've only come to this conclusion as an and now as an EMS medical director, where I now deal with you know majority of my time in the adult world, and now I'm kind of uh, putting it side to side with the pediatric world. The issue has become is that this theory of kids are not little adults. That is true for the for you know children. Let's say a child has some arrhythmia and goes into cardiac arrest because of it. Mm-hmm. When you're treating that child on the scene, the algorithm for for that kid's cardiac arrest is 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 the same as the adult. Now, mm-hmm. the arrhythmia, let's say he has Brugada syndrome or, or prolonged QT syndrome. Yes, you know, that's the job of the specialist at the pediatric hospital to figure that out. Kids are not just little adults for those specialists, but for the adult ER doctor, the 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 you know, paramedic in the field, they need to be uh, they need to see adult and pediatrics as really one continuum and really start to develop the confidence. And then we have to change the way that we educate the folks. And again, you know that, you know, you know, just as, full, as far as the full, full disclosure here, that the system that I created here um, is, is an age-based system primarily because I realize mm-hmm. that if you give people a length-based tape, 
that is something that is very difficult to use in front of mom and dad who's looking at you as a provider saying, you're going to fix my kid, aren't you? And then you're pulling out a tape that you haven't used in six months, and then you have to do three or four calculations to get to the right answer. And then paramedics wonder why they can't use this thing. And so there's a lot of different variables that go into actually performing on scene. And I think yeah. education is one, but the tools that we provide um, are, is, is something else. Well, I think that's one of the, you know, uh, one of the things you, you said in our last uh, uh, talk on Inside EMS was was uh, the roles of providers at, at resuscitation scenes and, and why that since it's so commonplace that we'll work an adult for 30 minutes on scene uh, until we get RLSC, why don't we give kids the same fighting shot? Um, right. I, I think that that lack of tools and lack of education and that, that built-in trepidation uh, in dealing with pediatric patients uh, makes us makes us so uh, willing to buy that whole scoop and run philosophy because uh, yeah. we want to get them get them out of our hands as quickly as possible. Um, when in reality, um, they probably should be working on scene just like the adults. Uh, and as you said, you know one one. One medic playing Dr. House and the other one playing Dr. Phil uh, to make yeah. sure that the, the parents understand what's going on. Uh, that that was probably the the keeper quote for me out of our last talk. Um, right, and uh, yeah, I, and I tell you what, Kelly, I, I appreciate that. And you know what, I realized that the decision of whether or not the paramedic will stay on scene or not is made before they arrive, and that for yeah. me is the biggest. You know, that that was the biggest thing for me. That was the aha moment that they decide if they're going to stay or go before they even get there. And so if they yeah. don't know if they're going to stay before they get there, then they're not going to stay. So, yeah, that, that, that's a, it's, a, it's, it's a pretty big shift in, in mentality. I agree. Yeah, it sure is. And Dr. Peter Antevi, you know, I want to wish you, uh, I'm sure Kelly and I want to wish you Happy New Year and uh, promise you'll come oh, yeah. back and see us in 2015. And uh, we appreciate you taking your time out of your vacation to come and join us on Inside EMS. And, uh, you know, we support the system. If people want to find out a little bit more about the system, how can they uh, get in touch with you? Uh, they can go to our website, which is uh, just handtevy.com. And uh, we'll be at all the all, all the big shows. I'll be speaking uh, at NEMSP. I'll be speaking at uh, EMS Today. And, um, and, you know, I typically do probably you know, eight or nine lectures throughout the country every year. And uh, I love when people come up and talk to me. And I love seeing you guys at the shows. And, uh uh, your podcast, I love it, hands down. Uh, it's my favorite, you guys. The topics you bring up and the uh, and your sense of humor, it's really amazing. So keep up the great work, and Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. We'll talk with you soon. Care, guys. All right. Well, it's always awesome to talk All with right. Dr. Atkins. And if you ever have the opportunity to hear him talk, he is going to break mm-hmm. down for you how to take care of a patient with uh, ease so but let's go ahead and transition kelly it's that time let me go ahead and, and give us a little bit of uh, drum roll here and let's talk and about the number time. one the number one ems news story of 2014 was ebola or as i refer to it sharknado ebola much ado over nothing right um man how many months was it uh where ebola was uh, all the news was all Ebola all the time. Uh, we had people uh, outfitting ambulances specially fitted for, for Ebola response. We, we've got, um, I've seen some news stories and, and some, some uh, PR uh, 
press releases from volunteer ambulance services who run 300 calls a year who probably spent $2,000 on Ebola uh, um, isolation gear, uh, level three biohazard suits and that sort of thing. Um, <laughs> to give you, give you some perspective, to date in 2014, we have had 10 Ebola cases in the United States and only two fatalities. Uh, by comparison, there were 26 lightning fatalities in the United States. There were over 200 child swimming pool drownings. Um, and there were 11 uh, deaths from sarcasm overload from a Kelly Grayson Facebook post. So to give you an idea of just how how, how big a, 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 a um, overblown the, the whole Ebola uh, crisis actually was. You know, what I think that one of the things that it really did is it gave us an opportunity, and this happens every so often, right? I mean, we got bird flu, we got swine flu, and we SARS. got AIDS. You know, we got SARS, and you know, so every off, every so often, we come across, uh, you know, these things that give us the opportunity to say, uh, are we really doing the best job that we can, and and how are we going to be able to, uh, you know, take care of this if it if it comes? And I think that one of the things that it did for us is it gave us the opportunity to say, you know what, M maybe it's not 2014 that this happens here, uh, but maybe it's 2020, and are we going to be ready when those things uh, occur? And I think. You know, for the practice of it, I think for the education of it, I, I think for the opportunity to address it, uh, it was something that really kind of worked out. And, uh, you know, but but I'm with you, man. 57,000 people last year died from the flu. And I think that one of the things that we got to understand this year is that uh, this flu vaccine that everybody got uh, didn't really do that much mm -hmm. for anybody. And uh, it may come back to the point that uh, we have a bad flu season, but we're not taking that as seriously as we need to now. No, no, we don't. And and we had 14,000 people in the United States uh, in 2013 die from C. diff diarrhea. It is 25 times more prevalent in the United States than Ebola is worldwide. Yet we don't pay any attention said? to it. Yeah, I think the one thing that, 14,000 people died from C. diff in the United States last year. I had no idea. And, and you know, and, and where do we get the, where do we often get C. diff from? Uh, antibiotic overuse, overprescription of antibiotics, and it kills the natural flora and fauna of our gut, and, and, and C. diff runs rampant. Uh, so, you know, the things that we, we pressure the doctor for and, and beg for antibiotics for our viral syndromes, uh, is causing uh, a lot of these cases of C. diff diarrhea. Um, yet that that sort of thing goes unreported by the media and, and ignored by a lot of healthcare. Um, you know, it's just if, if there's one thing that this entire uh, uh, Ebola scare has has should have driven home to everyone is that um, infection control and disinfection procedures. Uh, are paramount with any infectious disease. Ebola is no necess not necessarily any more virulent than, than many of the others we routinely deal with, uh, and we do it without level three isolation and, and, and spacesuits and that sort of thing. We just use droplet precautions, wear gloves, wear eye protection, and disinfect our equipment. Um, is that something that should be common sense, but it is a commonly practiced in a lot of places, and, and we pay lip service to it, but often we, we don't effectively uh, disinfect our ambulances and and you know if nothing else if it if it has to put the scare into a bunch of ambulance services around the country to to drive that point home well maybe it did some good but uh still much yeah. to do about nothing 
Yeah, I agree. And I think that one of the things that you touch on is is good hand hygiene. And uh, I don't think that's something we do enough of. And, uh, you know, we really need to start paying attention. There was a great thing that was on the on the world news, uh, you know, a few weeks ago when it came to uh, talking about the flu season was they put some type of, uh, I don't know, some chemical or something on the kids' hands that were, uh, mm-hmm. it was invisible. But it showed up under a light uh, once they uh, put the light on, and they just put it on two kids' hands. And in 30 minutes, 80% of the room was contaminated. And uh, it was just interesting to think about, you know, those kids, man, you know, we got to keep them kids clean anyway. But, you know, but think about it. If we're not, we're opening doors and we're hitting elevator buttons and we're, you know, grabbing handles. And, you know, uh, those are things that I think we got to pay attention to. And, um you know, I don't know that we're doing that well enough, but let's go ahead and uh, we'll say that that's the top story of the year and that was the biggest yeah. one. And uh, But uh, let's go ahead. we got a special guest to bring in here right now, and we're bringing him in a little early, but uh, we're sure that uh, he's going to be fine with that. So, you know, Come as on in, Patrick start, the Starfish. That's right. As we start to think about, you know, getting ready to close this show, uh, we've already been doing this uh, for 80 minutes. And we've got 10 minutes left in our show. And i got to tell you, it's gone really fast, and I think we had a great success with it. But let's go ahead and bring in the editor-in-chief of EMS1, Greg Fries. Greg, uh, you there? Yeah, Chris, I'm here. Can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you fine. It's like uh, you're on the moon. Can you hear me? Houston, we have a problem. Yeah, I am. uh, You you sound fine to me, Greg, but that's how you normally sound. Actually, I am a little bit further from the moon this time of year, I think, in the tilt of the Earth on its axis, but you know, nobody called in for an astronomy lesson. That's awesome. Well, thanks for joining us on the show, and, and you were helping us out in the chat room today, and uh, we really appreciate that. You know, one of the reasons we wanted to have you on is, you know, we kind of interviewed you a couple shows back, but now that you've had a little bit to get your feet wet and, and uh, you know, moving EMS-1 into 2015, maybe you can give us a taste of what... Uh, you know, the the folks out there can look forward to uh, as far as uh, content in the next 12 months? Well, a couple things uh, came to mind, Chris. Uh, first of all, uh, Steve Whitehead and Dr. David Tan were launching a new video series that they put together called What Would You Do? And in this uh, video series, uh, based on questions that uh, Steve and Dr. Tan have been asked and maybe live presentations or people have emailed into them, are, are are taking on a, a complex, you know, incident or scene response or a puzzler that somebody had, and, and they're just talking through it together. The first one's about, you know, a, a, a trauma, motor vehicle collision, you know, patients just about to be extricated. In the distance, uh, you can hear a helicopter coming in for a landing. Uh, you didn't even know it was called. And, you know, patients uh, coming out of the vehicle – the ground ambulance can get to the hospital in 20 minutes and, you know, the helicopter is about to land, you know, what would you do? And, and Steve and Dr. Uh, Tan go through that. I think that's something really exciting. Uh, that mm-hmm. first video is already out, but uh, in the first few months of uh, 2015, we'll be releasing at least one new video in that series a month, if not two. So I, I want people to look for that. I've got an exciting uh, new EMS-1 columnist that's uh, joining. Uh, it's a little bit uh, too early for me to, to say just who it is, or even we're still trying to settle on the name of the column, but one of my longtime goals as an EMS 
author and uh, storyteller has been to uh, find the, some of the really unique people that have made a career of EMS and to tell stories about them. And so I'm just really excited about how this column's coming together. I really want to encourage uh, people to keep an eye out for that. So that's something I, I had also in uh, 2015. And, you know, I think just uh, now that the the editorial team, it's myself and, and Kate Leckier, you know, we're just going to be bringing, you know, more news to EMS, but also more, you know, our news reporting. You know, last uh, week when the tragic events were unfolding in New York City, the two police officers were killed. Uh, Kate and I had a discussion on a Saturday night of like, well, what does this mean for EMS? And I said, well, Kate, let's run with that. And, you know, Kate got on the phone, was talking to EMS leaders in the New York City area and was able to uh, write an article about just what does this mean that maybe there's a revenge uh, or to random violence directed at, at people, you know, wearing blue with lights on their vehicles sitting on street corners, you know, that could just as easily be EMTs and paramedics. And uh, mm-hmm. Kate was able to report and post that article. And, you know, in 2015, you know, we're looking forward to more of that type of news reporting and putting the context into the news, the, putting news into context for EMTs and paramedics. That's something I look forward to, brother. It's, it's you know, um, uh, I've seen you you're commenting on the EMS1 Facebook thread, and, and I've already started to see a, a, a change in the tone there. Um, just, you know, you, you get, bring a, a stabilizing influence to uh, to the other commenters in the thread, uh, and, and the way you uh, the way you approach um, uh, how EMS one disseminates the news, and, and I appreciate that. That's something I've uh, I have learned to uh, learn to value in the last few days uh, dealing with some of the other Facebook groups out there, the EMS Facebook groups. But uh, uh, I'm glad to see that, and I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing some of the uh, the new stuff, uh, particularly with uh, with Steve and Dr. Tan and, and our new columns. Well, thanks. And, you know, the other thing that uh, you reminded me of is, uh, you know, we, we get some feedback about uh, sometimes like, well, why is this uh, website all about uh, the bad thing that's the bad things that might be happening in EMS? You know, maybe there's an ambulance collision or paramedics uh, uh, stealing narcotics and, you know, we want to find and share that news um, and also find and share the great news, the wonderful things that are happening in EMS, the amazing services uh, that are out there that maybe nobody, very few people have ever heard of. Part of our end-of-year coverage is an article about Presidio EMS, and it's a, a very small service in a very remote and faraway part of southwest Texas, and that came to us because, uh, you know, a Facebook uh, group that I'm a part mm-hmm. of, somebody said, how come you've never done coverage on Presidio? And I said, well, if, tell us about Presidio. What do we got to know? And, you know, in a matter of minutes, I've got a, a message from the director of uh, Presidio EMS, Jonathan Farrow, saying, hey, I heard you want to know about Presidio, you know, and he provided me paragraphs and paragraphs about the work they're doing. Um, a video and, and links and, and just wonderful follow-up as we put that story together. 
Uh, I've got one that hopefully we'll post here in a couple days, but uh, Wake County EMS was asked to do to a, a trampoline facility. Who knew these things even existed? But uh, <laughs> a trampoline facility um, has this huge foam pit, and they called up Wake County EMS and said, you know, if we call 911, how are you going to get uh, a kid out of the spinal cord injury? And Wake County and Raleigh Fire said, well, we're not sure. Let's go and, and practice and try some things out. And uh, we'll be posting an article, an interview, and pictures from uh, Wake County EMS about this uh, trampoline pit uh, rescue, um, which, incidentally, if the three of us ever get together for a live face-to-face podcast, we'll we'll chase that with a trip to the trampoline um, yeah, that's facility. training I sign up for. Those, yeah. those, no, those I, I want to see the two of you jumping on the trampolines into the foam pit. Uh, I'm all for it, man. <laughs> that, those places are starting to pop up all over the place now, and they're really becoming, uh, you know, almost like skateboard parks. And so that would be a great article to, uh, you know, great article to look at. And thanks for doing that. But Greg, I, I want to thank you for joining us on our end of year show. And uh, look forward to working with you in uh, 2015. And uh, I won't put you on the spot to ask who your best podcaster is on the Inside EMS. Um, but <laughs> yeah, uh, I wouldn't do that. It would it would it would hurt your feelings if he were to answer, Chris. Well, I think the best member of this team is the uh, person that's uh, silently been uh, handling the uh, calls and uh, coordinating all this, and that's Kate, of course. That's right, and Kate <laughs> was our call. Uh, Call screener and uh, she's on mute and she was the person that everybody Chase was talking the, to. But I Chase the power behind the throne. That's right, it is. But exactly. Kelly, I think uh, we're ready to put the wraps on a show, man. I think our live show is over. Our last show of 2014. Uh, 2014. We've got 2015 that's going to be coming up with a lot of great content and a lot of great guests. And, uh, you know, I, I just go ahead and put your yeah. uh, final words on 2014 and then get us out of here and let's uh, get ready for 2015. As always, guys, thanks for tuning in to Inside EMS. It's been a fun year uh, fielding your questions and, and covering the EMS news and, and events of 2014, and we look forward to continuing it in 2015 and, and uh, getting your feedback on what we do and how we can do it better. So email us at the show at ems1.com. And I'm Kelly Grayson for my co-host Chris Cibolero. We're out. Thanks for tuning in. <laughs>